Good morning. Let's read the text together, pray, and hear what God may be saying to us through the word this morning. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Gracious Lord, as we look into this text this morning, may our hearts be open to receive this from your beloved servant. May we hear the message. May we not refuse the message that may be coming to us from your Holy Spirit speaking through your text and possibly, Lord, use me as an instrument in that way. I ask that we would not refuse, but we would humble and submit ourselves to what you would have us to do. And Lord, give us strength as we look at this text now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm actually very glad that I only have four verses this morning. I was tempted to make it five. You'll probably be glad that I didn't. Um, this text is one of five warning texts, so-called warning texts, in the book of Hebrews. And they are warnings if we let them say what they mean to say. And they're difficult sayings. And they can tug at the corners of the eternal debate over freedom of the will. And I reckon that uh, most of us, whether we know it or not, are probably predisposed towards a Calvinist understanding of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the perseverance of the saints refers to the redeemed in Christ and renewed by the Spirit that are kept in faith by the Almighty power of God. I would actually be surprised if any listening to this message uh, would have a pure Arminian perspective on this point, because a pure Arminian perspective describes um, the progress of the saints as possibly falling away from grace, uh, and actually refers to the term falling away from grace refers to those who believe and are truly saved, that they can lose their salvation by failing to keep their faith uh, to God. Indeed, actually, a person can't really be a member of the tabernacle if they hold that view, um, that you can lose your salvation. We, we believe that a person is uh, born again by the Holy Spirit, and they are kept. And uh, we, we believe that to be true here. Um, actually, this is quite the minority view within uh, Christianity, especially those who are of the Mennonite and Amish tradition, uh, they hold on to uh, the belief that you can lose your salvation. That being said, uh, these five warning passages tend to bring up tensions that exist between the theological systems of Arminianism and Calvinism, 
And it is not like two poles with no middle ground. There is a spectrum of view and understanding that exists between uh, these, these positions. And uh, while not all are of equal value, not all positions on the spectrum are of equal value, in fact, some may be dangerous, and yet others more tolerable. Uh, Charles Simeon, who was a Calvinist in 18th century England, uh, he was a pastor and graduate of Cambridge, and he represents, I believe, an appropriate degree of humility in dealing with tension-filled topics along these lines. Uh, his recommendation was not to go beyond what is clearly revealed in Scripture, and not to force texts to say that which is inappropriate, and forcing them into a particular theological mold. And this is what he said. He said, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to thrust in what I think must be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage that I am expounding. Now, Simeon thought it was a great a great evil to make the doctrines of grace a ground of separation from one another. In fact, there is a memorable tale that's told of him having a discussion with John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley, uh, and he had theological differences, and he suggested that they did have theological differences, and that maybe that implied that they should draw daggers and fight it out. Uh, but he suggested before they actually do that, that he would have permission to ask Wesley a few questions. And he asked Wesley some questions, and going point by point through the doctrines of grace, he found actually that they were most agreed on many of the essential ways of thinking and discussing. And Simeon concluded, after having this conversation with Wesley, he said, Sir, with your leave, I will put away my dagger again. If you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will quarterly unite in those things wherein we do agree. And I think that that has the greatest value in the kingdom of God. And in particular, these five warning passages, there is a lot of agreement. And there is a lot of agreement on the fact that there is potential that someone might actually drift away. What the point of disagreement is, is whether or not the person or group of people uh, that's being talked to are believers or not. And so in other words, to whom are these warnings addressed? Are they being addressed to believers, to unbelievers? And if this is to believers, then what does this mean to the popular catchphrase of once saved, always saved? Well, this morning... As we look at this text, we need to remember that the author was not teaching a system of theology, but rather he was writing pastorally to people at a distance. And while certainly Paul had presuppositions, he had viewpoints on several of the issues that are discussed by theologians, uh, when we come to the warning passages in the book of Hebrews, uh, we need to let them mean what they say, and to say what they mean. They are, in fact, warnings. Second, we also need to watch how these warnings function together. There are five of them. Uh, do they ebb and flow? Do they crescendo? How do they relate in the overall argument of the book? 
We can't take them in complete isolation. But we're going to read this text in the flow, and I'm not going to go beyond what this text is saying for the moment and let the text speak, hopefully, uh, to fresh ears. Um, third, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through the warnings. Indeed, it, how wonderful it would be that through these, these warnings that are here, this warning particular, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, how wonderful it would be if someone would be drawn closer to Christ because of it. Now, I typically state a theme or a big idea at the beginning of my sermon, but I'm not going to do that today, and I hope it doesn't drive you nuts. But today, uh, I'm going to rather let the text um, uh, lead us to the big idea, and we'll discover Paul's purpose in giving the warning as we draw closer to the end of the sermon. Now, the first item of business is found in verse 1, and we see the word therefore. And when we see the word therefore, we must ask, what's it there for? And in this text, uh, I'm going to raise several questions that will hopefully find answers. And the first is, uh, what is it that they have heard? Verse 2, verse 1 begins, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So what have they heard? That is the first question. What have they heard, or to whom have they heard from? And in chapter 1, we begin to unpack this question. And in chapter 1, we notice that in the very beginning, the author says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. How has the Father spoken to us through his Son? Remember the analogy of Mary Poppins. Uh, so many children's stories are built on the theme of entering into a created world. Uh, my children used to watch Blue's Clues, and Steve uh, would jump into a picture with his pet dog, and they would have an adventure together. Um, another classic that's built on this theme is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And there are so many of these stories that, that have a creator creating something and then entering into it. Um, we can almost do this as we, we can daydream. We can create a world that's not real, and we can enter into it. Uh, but take the unreal, the imaginative, and transfer that to the, the real God the Son created this universe, and then he entered into it. He died, arose, and left this universe, and he's coming again. And since God the Son is greater than the angels, and personally enters into his creation, he comes with a message that's of high importance. We ought to pay much closer attention to what we have heard particularly what we have heard from him. But this is a different kind of hearing. It is a hearing which responds by faith in the message. Faith in the message believes that it is not only authoritative because the Son of God has given this message, but it is also certain to come about. 
Uh, right now, I think we would all desire for someone to speak with authority and certainty. We would like our lives to get back to normal. Politicians are speaking. Scientific community is speaking. I think we would like to, you know, shake the world and just say, could somebody simply speak with authority and certainty and tell us what is going on? What is going to happen? What's going to come about? We don't know who to listen to because we don't have any confidence in their authority because no one seems to have any certainty. On the other hand, the message that comes from God is absolutely certain. It is absolutely certain. Uh, not only is it come from God, and it is an authoritative message, it is reliable. And so verses 2 through 4, we observe that this message is declared in a greater way. Uh, it has been proved to be reliable. Uh, verse 2, God has chosen to speak with authority in times gone by through prophets and also with the angels and the giving of the law itself. Notice it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. The previous message there is, is a reference to the Mosaic law coming uh, at the hand of angels. Last Sunday I shared a tradition of how that Lucifer uh, uh, was believed to have fall, fallen because he did not want to give praise to God by giving adoration to the firstborn of God in the garden. Now, in verse 2, we see another hint of such possible tradition that has some roots in reality. Because Moses doesn't exactly describe in the book of Exodus the angels giving and attending to the law. Rather, it's in Deuteronomy, chapter 33. At the end of Moses' life, he, he composes a song, and, uh, and then he gives a blessing to the children of Israel before he passes away. And in Deuteronomy 33.2, he says that 10,000 of God's holy ones and flaming fire had come and descended upon Mount, with, to, on Mount Sinai. And so it, I believe that Paul is talking out of this tradition and saying, look, if, if the law itself had the witness of all of the angelic hosts, how much more is the witness of that which is given to us from the Son of God and witnessed by the Holy Spirit. Um, in verses 3 through 4, there is that greater than uh, comparison. Verse 3, we see um, that this was declared at first by the Lord and then attested to us by those who hear. That word, is a, word Lord is a title here. It's not the personal name of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we, we've, we've not yet encountered the personal name of Jesus, and we won't do so until we get to, check to verse 9 next Sunday. Um, and this is significant, because he's making the case that the message from God was brought through the second person of the Trinity and affirmed by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In fact, in these verses, you see the, the divine movement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see in verse uh, 4, while God also bore witness, God, they're referring to the Father. And then in verse 3, uh, the Lord refers to the Son. And then in verse 4, 
the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see the, the three persons of the Trinity in action around the message that is to be heard. And God um, gave this uh, so that we would know that it was authoritative and also that it was reliable. And the third reason that given that we should be listening and hearing is that this is a final message from God, a final message from God. God has spoken, and God is completing his work in Jesus Christ. He's not giving any new revelation. In fact, when Jesus was on earth in his ministry, he, he called people to repentance and to believe that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. In Matthew 4, uh, Peter at Pentecost preached the finality of the revelation of of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul preached in Acts 14, verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from vain idols to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Speaking to Gentiles, Paul also brings the finality of the message. There's nothing else to look for. God has spoken. He's now calling the world to repent and turn to him. Here in Hebrews 2, um, we see, and I don't want to steal my thunder for next week, but in verse 9 it says, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that the by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Even here, the finality of the message is clear, um, that Jesus is now seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. He is crowned with glory and honor because, of this, because he tasted the suffering of death for all. He is now able to dispense grace to all who call upon his name for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the final, final message. Um, he's coming again. And here in this text, we see glimpses of the fact that we need to fall upon our knees and plead for his mercy and accept the grace that he offers to all who call upon his name. And this is the good news, that the Son of God tasted death for everyone who turns from their sins and their unbelief. See, sin is the enemy, and there is forgiveness for sin for all who call upon his name. And the message from God is final. The only thing left now that's yet to occur is the unfolding of judgment upon the world. Salvation from sin, death, and the final judgment comes from none other than faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus who tasted death for everyone. Now, this is the message that we have heard. And so the warning here is that to ignore this message may potentially bring danger upon oneself. And that is the second question. What is the danger of avoiding this message? Um, in verse 2, we see that lesser to a greater comparison. So if the law which gave consequences came, 
um, and every disobedience received a just retribution, how much greater then should we expect a retribution for the ignoring of the call to repentance from the mouth of Jesus Christ? What is the danger? Let's consider this question for a moment. If God's law had definite consequences for ignoring it, the implication is, how much more will be the consequences of ignoring the message of the Holy Spirit who is bringing witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? See, God's law was considered to be a definitive statement about his character and his will for his people to be devoted to God the Father. And that will was to demonstrate, uh, was demonstrated positively and negatively. How so? Well, the law shows us positively the beauty and the holiness of God's love. God loves and he cares for his creation. He has expectation of his creation to love one another and to love him. That's positive, but there is a negative aspect of God's law. And that shows us how that a failure to follow God's righteous character of love brings an imbalance to justice. There's a consequent need for punishment to be meted out for those who ignore or rebel against God's law. For example, when the law of Sabbath was given, it was prescribed that no physical, no activity could be done. It had to be completely and wholly dedicated time to the Lord. You couldn't even go outside the camp and pick up sticks. In fact, there was a time when a man was outside picking up sticks to create a fire for himself, and they found that man, and the whole congregation picked up stones, according to the law, and stoned him to death outside of the camp. Now, that seems pretty severe to most of us, but then again, it's probably because we don't fully appreciate the infinite beauty and the holiness of God. God's law was a message that God wants his creation to rest, reflect, recalibrate, and it was all for their good. God didn't give this instruction because he hated them. He gave it because he loved them and wanted them to be able to rest and focus exclusively upon him and to enjoy time with their families, and to spend time uh, in thoughtful, recreational worship with Him. And so, critically important. Now, rebellion against God's will will not be tolerated. And this is Paul's point here in the book of Hebrews. Every transgression, every disobedience to the law received a just retribution, a just punishment. And the whole story of Israel was like this man who was stoned for his disregard of the law. Israel neglected the sabbatical years. They neglected the year of Jubilee of allowing the land to return to uh, family owners. They had enslaved the land and they had enslaved their fellow Israelites. This was all prohibited by the law. They were to love their neighbor as themselves and they were to honor God who had given them the land. And see, God had spoken to the nation, and they refused to listen, and they drifted into places of danger outside of God's protection. 
They floated off, if you will, into uncharted territory of God's wrath. Remarkably, this section of Hebrews is very closely connected to the first martyr and the sermon of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. Stephen, who was one of the seven, uh, we call them deacons, he had many gifts uh, and abilities, and one of those was preaching the gospel, and he preached to his fellow Jews, and in Acts 7, he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Did you notice that? Stephen here is saying exactly what Paul is saying in Hebrews 2, that they had the law given to them by angels, but now they had the Son of God in person, witnessed by the Holy Spirit, and they refused to listen to him. And what did the Jews do? They stoned Stephen to death for claiming that Jesus was the Son of God. They stoned him because he claimed that he was the exact imprint, the radiance of glory. It was considered blasphemy according to the law. And Stephen was considered to be a transgressor who simply received a just retribution. How ironic. Was he really? No, he wasn't. Stephen was proclaiming the truth about Jesus, whereas those who were witness to all that Jesus had done, all that Jesus had taught, were actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They, they stoned Stephen, and what happened when Stephen was being stoned? He looked up into heaven, and he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of the glory of God, and they stoned him because they were resisting the Holy Spirit. Some have called this the unpardonable sin, and I do believe this is what Jesus was referring to, that when with every opportunity to the gospel has been provided, and people are given that opportunity to respond, and they refuse and they willfully walk away from God, they are walking out of the protection of God and are going to feel the weight of God's just retribution. You see, the Jews were stoning Stephen for blasphemy, but Stephen was not committing blasphemy. The Jews were committing blasphemy. I think it's quite interesting because if Paul truly did write this text, I wonder if he did not remember the words of Stephen as he stood by the wayside and held the garments of those who stoned him. You see, the Jews did the same thing to Jesus. He had healed on the Sabbath. He had healed on the Sabbath. He had, been bro he had broken the Sabbath, according to them, and they claimed that he was a sinner, but yet he did a miracle of healing and restoration on the Sabbath. And they could not see, and they were resisting the Holy Spirit, and they were willfully walking away from that which was reliable, that which was authoritative, and a final call to repent and to believe the gospel. But they walked away. This leads us to the third question in this text that I want us to consider. How is it possible to drift away? Who is Paul writing to? 
to Paul, to people, excuse me, who had responded to the gospel. I believe that Paul's writing to people who had responded to the gospel. But how can people profess to believe fall away from grace? And we need to let this passage mean what it says and to say what it means. If these are going to be legitimate warnings, we have to allow them to say what they say. Falling away comes from neglect. Notice in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglect. Salvation by grace through faith is so great that it cannot be mistaken. It's not something that could possibly have invented by by humans who are sinful. We all tend to try to inflate ourselves. We, We want others to think greater of ourselves than we are. The reality is that the gospel is so great, but it can be neglected and not believed. It may be neglected. The word neglect in this text literally means careless or to pay no attention to something, to neglect it. It's the same word that Jesus used in a parable right before he was crucified. He used it in the parable of the wedding feast. And in that parable in Matthew 22, Jesus described a king who had prepared a wedding for his own son and invited many people to come to it. And he sent servants out to proclaim the message of the coming uh, wedding and invite people to come. And the message was, come to the wedding feast. Come. Come and join in. But this parable goes on to say that they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest of the servants treated them shamefully and killed them. Did you catch those words? They paid no attention. That's the word, which means neglect. When we stop paying attention, it's because we want something else. We want something else because we believe that that it has greater value to us. Other things become more important. One's farm is more important. One's business is more important. And the list could go on and on and on. But that is a lie of the devil. What does the Holy Spirit say? Do we exhaust ourselves in all of life's pursuits? No. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And when we stop listening to the word, and we stop responding to the word, and the call of the cross to repent of sin... And when we stop expressing love to our spouse, or we we stop seeing the message of the gospel as being from the very Son of God, what we are doing is neglecting. We are neglecting the message. We're neglecting it because we have seen that the messenger is not of as great a value. And when we look at a text like this, we need to stop and ask questions. We need to ask ourselves, how is it that we could neglect the Son of God? In this text, 
someone from an Arminian perspective would say that it's possible to fall so far away that you actually do lose your salvation. A person from a Calvinistic perspective would say that those who are elect will ultimately persevere. And here, Paul is not arguing a theological angle. Rather, he's speaking to a group of people that he can't see in front of them. He doesn't know inside their hearts. He, he doesn't know what their composition is. He doesn't know if there's believers, there's unbelievers, there's every state in between. But what he does know, what he does know, is that ultimately, ultimately those who drift away are exposing in themselves a heart of unbelief because they have not prioritized, they have not seen that the message is of great value. I believe that Paul in his warning is a lot like a father speaking to his children, warning them to take seriously the message as if it's from the very Son of God. To walk away may indeed reveal that in your heart you were a Judas, that you were never really among us. But the reality is, and here is the big idea of the text, since it is possible to drift away, and we don't know the state of anyone's heart, it it behooves all of us, it, it compels all of us to pay much closer attention to God who is speaking. When the Word of God clearly states something for us to do and a cross to pick up and follow Him, if we plug our ears and say, no, no, we may, we may in fact be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And we may be no greater than the children of Israel in the wilderness. In this text, there is truly a warning. And I pray that as we're listening to this text, that if our hearts are pricked under the weight of conviction, that we do something about that. That we, we would repent of whatever has taken a hold that we have deemed as being more important. More important than obeying Christ that we would repent of those things and then turn and value Christ. We would reckon that whenever we make excuses for what we should do, that we would stop making those excuses and we would pay closer attention to God who is speaking. That with eyes of faith, we would see not just the message, but we would see the messenger behind the message. We would also restructure all of our life so that we would take great delight in what God delights in. Whether it be reading of the word, of prayer, of loving one another, speaking kind words to one another, or building one another up, we all need to pay closer attention because God is speaking. He has spoken. His message is final. And if you don't know whether or not you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I can tell you that this is a moment of important decision. You need to listen to the one who's calling. There is a day coming when there will be judgment upon all the earth. Jesus Christ came and he tasted death for everyone so that you do not have to, to bear the weight of that for all of eternity. 
Jesus Christ provides the forgiveness of sins because he died in your place, was buried in your place, and rose in your place so that you might have the forgiveness of sin because the punishment for those sins has been taken care of in him. It is my prayer that that you would turn in your heart and trust Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and find him to be all that you have ever hoped for. My prayer is that those who are uh, at various stages of drift would, would turn and respond. Do not wait for the day in which you would find that you are not among the wedding feast. Do whatever you have to do. Cut off your arm, poke out your eye, but do not, do not underestimate the certainty of God's message. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, I ask that you would be working. I don't know, I can't possibly see anyone here other than my own heart today. And I pray that in my own heart, I would not just be simply a messenger, but I would be a receptor of the message as well. I pray that you would work deeply in all of our hearts, that we would draw close to you. Lord, you are a great Savior. You, uh, through the conspiracy of eternity, conspired for a way that we might have a relationship with you for all of eternity, in that you sent your only begotten Son, that we might uh, not perish, but we could have everlasting life. And I pray, Father, that we would uh, turn away from those things which are so transient, so passing, and we would f focus all of our hearts upon you. In your name we pray. Amen.